Welcome to First Baptist Belton. By God's grace, we aim to be a gospel-centered people who know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy the following message. All right, well, good morning. How are we this morning? Good. Energy is great in here, and there's a lot of reasons why. As you know, we are, uh, had the opportunity to hear from Josh and sit under his leadership this morning. It was so great. It was wonderful. The energy just, man, I'm excited for him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, through the process of us trying to find a worship pastor, man, we went through a whole lot of candidates, and we walked through this long process, and, and you got to experience a little bit of Josh's gifts, but one of the things that I love the most about him is, is actually nothing to do with the stage or, or music or anything else, but it's his heart for Jesus, and it's his heart for you. And that's what I think makes him intangible uh, when it comes to gifting and all those things. Really what makes him, him the right guy is his love for the Lord and love for, for the people. And so we're excited to have him. We're also excited for VBS this week as Eddie uh, energetically talked about. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, tomorrow morning. We're going to have this room filled with students who are going to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, man, we're excited about that, thrilled about the opportunity uh, for that, that that presents. And so, man, please be in prayer for us as we're ministering to these kiddos. We're excited to have them. Now, i got a funny story to share with you. So a few weeks ago, we talked about the power of reconciliation. Y'all remember that? Yeah, we talked about the power of reconciliation, and Jesus calls us to be reconciled in our relationships, and one of the big challenges that he, he gives in that particular text is he said, hey, listen, um, if you're in worship right there, and you realize that, man, I, I haven't been reconciled with someone, or I, I'm still holding a grudge, or they're holding a grudge against me, there's something that's, that's going on with my horizontal relationships, he says, leave your offering at the altar, go make right, get right with your, in your relationships, and then, then come back and make your offering. Well, in that same vein, what I said is, hey, you know what? I think the challenge that Jesus is giving us here is, man, if there's somebody in your, in, in your life, in your relationships, that you, maybe you haven't reconciled that relationship. My, the big challenge was, hey, this week, let's do the hard work of going and being reconciled, and, and let's not come back to church until we've been reconciled. Y'all remember that? Yeah, that's a big challenge. But here's what's funny. So as I was walking down these steps, it suddenly hit me, I'm going to be on vacation next week. <laughs> I don't know, did anybody catch it? I did. Oh, man, a lot of you did. Y'all been judging me all week. <laughs> I can't believe that. No, but we're excited. Jordan and I had the opportunity to take the kids on vacation, and we went to the beach. And we had a blast. We had so much fun. It was great to get away. I love the beach. Jordan loves the beach. Our kids... Well, we decided that they might not love the beach, but um, <laughs> Lane said at one point, like two days in, he's like, Dad, there's sand everywhere. It's everywhere. And I said, well, Lane, you're at the beach. And so, so it is. We had a great time. So thanks for that. Thanks for the extra grace. We certainly need it. Um, now, the irony of this trip is that we made a 10-hour drive. Can you imagine 10 hours in the car with two littles? Woo, man, I need all the help I can get. And thank God for a GPS the navigational system, it's a road map, right, that helps me stay focused. I need to get from point A to point B. I've got all these points of interest that I need to get to to keep me sane, right? It helps eliminate the periphery, eliminate the distractions, keep me focused on where we are headed. Now, here's the deal. 
when it comes to worship, oftentimes you and I can find ourselves distracted by the peripheral things in our lives, can't we? Right? We get distracted about style. We get distracted about song choice, about who's singing, about who's not singing. Man, it's amazing how distracted we can become on things that are on the periphery. And then we lose sight on who we're singing to and who we're singing about. And so here's my goal this morning. You ready? We're going to talk about what does it mean to worship. So what is worship? And then I'm going to give us a roadmap for what worship looks like. So maybe you're sitting in the room and you're going, man, you know what? He's right. Like, I, I need to think through, what, is it, what does it mean to worship? So biblically speaking, what does it mean for me to worship? And then, what's a roadmap to get me from point A to point B, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Let's define worship. thought this to be helpful. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines worship like this. It's to regard something or someone with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. Jesus would carry that on in Matthew chapter uh, 37, verse, or 22, verse 37. He would say this, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all our mind. So when it comes to worship, the most basic definition of worship is that it impacts, for Jesus, all of the human faculties. All of it, right? All of it is, worship is all-encompassing, encompassing. A couple of weeks ago, I defined this. In that, in that sermon on reconciliation, I defined worship like this. That it is a supernatural response of the head, of the heart, and of the hands to who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. I'll say that again. It is a supernatural response of the head, of the heart, and of our hands to who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And so true worship then is not simply about singing songs, although it's not less than that, right? It's, that's a whole part of it. We worship God through our thoughts, our emotions, and by our service to Him. So again, it's not just about singing songs. It's about all of life. It's about our head, worshiping God through our head, through our minds, through our hearts and our emotions, and then also with our hands. And so I want to break that down a little bit. First and foremost, God desires that we would worship Him by pursuing him with our minds. Did you know that? Did you know that God desires that you would worship him with your mind? That you would pursue him with your minds? He has given us minds to think on him, to study him. I love what the late pastor R.C. Sproul says. He, he says that true Christians want God to dominate their thinking and to fill their minds with ideas of himself. In other words, we find ourselves more in love with God when we pursue him when we allow him to dominate our thinking by filling our minds with things about himself, which becomes all the more uh, challenging in our day and age. And so we read books, we study God's word, we fill our minds with more of God. That's the great pursuit that A.W. Tozer challenges us with. He says we need to pursue God and pursue him with our minds. But not only that, God desires that we would experience him in our emotions. Yes. We're in a Baptist church. Yes, we're talking about emotions. I know, it's scary. But God desires that we would worship him in our emotions. He designed your emotions. He's the God of emotions just as well. He desires that we would long for him. He desires that we would delight in him. He desires that we would want more of him. One author, he rightly argues that the engagement of the heart in worship 
is the coming alive of the feelings and the emotions and the affections of the heart. God desires that he would be utmost in your affections. That you would love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. That he would be the first priority, not only in your mind, but also in your heart. Where there is no affection for God, some might say there is no love for him. There's no affection for him. Maybe there's no love for him. I mean, can you imagine a marriage? Can you imagine if I came home after work, long day at work, and I came home and Jordan was excited to see me and I said, hey, babe, I'm going to sit here on the couch. Can you imagine if the kids got home from school and, and I greeted them with, oh, hey, glad you're here. Well, what would that tell them? Well, it'd probably tell them because there's not much affection there. Well, maybe there's something wrong, right? And in the same way, when we come to God, God desires that we would show affection for him, that we'd be excited for him, that we'd, we'd, we'd be thrilled to death that, that, that he is, he's alive, right? That he knows us, that he's called us his own. In fact, this is what uh, Paul writes, or I'm sorry, David, no, this is Paul. Paul says this, he says, rejoice in the Lord always, rejoice David exclaims, he says, serve the Lord with gladness. Psalm 82, verse 2, David writes, my soul longs, yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord, for my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. God's the God of our emotions. He desires that we long for him, that we delight in him, that we want him. But see, this is where emotions and all of those things kind of go wrong. See, here's where it happens. Here's where it all goes wrong. When our worship is driven by our emotions rather than our emotions being led by truth. See, that's where that goes wrong, right? When our, when our emotions are what drives our worship rather than the truth of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, it's that truth that ought to drive us to worship. Let me illustrate that. When you read in Ephesians chapter 2 that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you have little to no hope that you were a stranger and an alien to the covenant of God's promises, that ought to elicit in you a mourning. A, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm hopeless. But then as you keep reading in Ephesians 2, and he says that you were once dead and now you've been made alive. Listen, that ought to stir in you a joy where you could say along with Paul, rejoice, I say again, rejoice. I was dead and now I'm alive. You know, I've never, I've never met somebody who was dead and then was resurrected from the dead and, and made alive. I've never seen them, but, but I would imagine that if you were once dead and now you were made alive, you're probably not going to be indifferent about that. Am I right? Yeah, like, I think you're going to be pretty excited. I think, as a matter of fact, I think you're going to be thrilled to death that you were dead. Now you're alive. So when we come to God, we express that to him, that we were once dead, and now we've been made alive. Wow, it's incredible. It's incredible. One of the things that I love about David is David, oftentimes in the Psalms, if you were to read the Psalms, I love the Psalms, but David oftentimes is, is, is caught up in his emotions. Maybe you can relate to that. Man, sometimes I'm reading David, I'm like, man, this brother, he's gone through some stuff. I mean, it's just, he's caught up in emotion, he's caught up in a lot of different things, but one of the things that I love about David is almost always by the end of his psalm, by the end of his writing, he's, man, God, where are you? I, I don't see you. I don't feel you. I don't know where you are. My adversaries, they're surrounding me. 
But almost always by the end of that psalm, he says, and yet, I will trust in you. I will trust in your goodness. I will trust in your faithfulness. I will trust in your steadfast love. It's the truth of who God is and what he has done for David that roots and grounds his emotions. So God desires that we would pursue him with our minds and through our emotions, but then also God desires that we would pursue him through our hands. I want you to hear what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. He's speaking to his followers at the end of the age, okay? And here's what he says. Then the king, he will say to those, the king is Jesus in this scenario, the king is Jesus here. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hear this. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was put in prison and there you visited me. And then the righteous will rightly ask, Well, Lord, when did, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see, that, see you as a stranger and, and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did you see sick? When did, you see, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And here's how the king, here's how Jesus will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. See, the point here is this, that when we are actively serving Jesus, what he's saying here is when we're actively serving one another, here's what we're doing. We're actually serving our king. When we're serving the household of God, we're actually serving him. When we respond rightly with our minds to the truth of who God is and what he's done, that does something to our emotions, that elicits us in us a response to want to serve him with our hands. The worship of our minds and hearts fuel the service of our hands. Now, here's an important part. I mentioned a minute ago that worship is the supernatural response. I want you to notice that. It's a supernatural response. But what I also want you to know is is that worship is a natural part of your makeup. Do you know that? Worship is a natural part of who you are as a human being made in the image of God. You've been made in the image of God, and like the writer of Ecclesiastes would tell us, that he has put eternity in your heart so that, so that you would long for him, that you would desire him. But what I also want you to see, what I want you to see here is that while worship, we have a natural bent for worship, as Merriam-Webster rightly defines it, to regard something or someone as great or extravagant in respect and honor, it's natural, but the worship of God is unnatural. It's supernatural. So we have deep within us this desire to want to worship something or someone, right? Just look at, look at what we do with celebrities. Look at what we do at a ball game, right? Deep within us is a desire to worship something bigger and something greater than ourselves. But the worship of God, however, is supernatural, supernatural. See, apart from God and his awakening in us, a worship of himself, it's impossible in fact, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness. The worship of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
In addition, he would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, he says, For no one can say, Jesus is Lord, apart from the Holy Spirit. It is impossible to worship God for who he is and what he has done for us in Christ, apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, awakening that, removing the veil, so to speak, so that you can see him and so that you can worship him. And so that's, that's worship. That's the bare, bare basics of, of, of worship and what that means. And so now I want to answer the second question, which is this. So what is the roadmap of our worship? So now that we've talked about, okay, this is what worship is. Now what's a roadmap? Here's what I mean by that. This is the question that I've been thinking about. So where does worship begin? How is it sustained? Okay. And then what is the end result of our worship? So what's our, what's our starting point? What's our destination? Well, here's the answer for that. You ready? All right, if you've got a pen, you might want to write it down. Here's the answer. Worship begins with the greatness of God. It is sustained by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it finds its destination in the transformation of our mind, of our heart, and our hands. That's the roadmap. That's where we're headed, so let's break that down. David, he starts us off well. He says that worship begins with the greatness of God. In Psalm 145, verse 3, he says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And hear this, his greatness is unsearchable. God's greatness is unsearchable. He's so big, he's so great that there's no amount of study, there's no way that we will ever find our way or ever be able to understand who God is actually is. His greatness is unsearchable. And I don't know about you, but from the time I started school, well, let's just say I loathed school. Pretty much everything to do with it, except for maybe recess and lunch. I did appreciate those two items in, in, my, in my school day. I, I hated school, so much so that even on my graduation day, I graduated at Texas Tech, and I remember walking across the stage, and I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking, man, I really accomplished anything. I, I wasn't thinking any of those things as I should have been. I was walking across that stage, and all I could think about was, thank God I did it. <laughs> and thank God is freedom. I'm never going to be in a classroom ever again. Nobody is ever going to force me to read a book that I don't want to read. This is great. This is what freedom feels like. But you know, I don't know about you, but God has a sense of humor. God has a, he, he, he does, he's got a sense of humor. As a matter of fact, that humor uh, met me in an insurance office. I'm selling insurance and God has this funny way of calling me to the ministry, right? And so I leave the insurance world and, and I know I'm going, man, if I'm going to go to ministry and, and I knew at that point that God had called me that, I knew that I needed some help. Because um, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not the, the sharpest tool in the shed. So I knew I needed some help. And so I was like, okay, I enrolled for seminary. And there I found myself at Southwestern Seminary. And you know what happened? I loved it. I loved every second of it. I thought, oh my gosh, all of those miserable years were leading me to this point in seminary where I would come to love, 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 love. I even loved the study of Baptist heritage. Can you believe that? That ended up being like my favorite class. I loved it. I loved the study of God. Theology became something that I just lived for. Um, but there's something that I realized while I was in seminary. Um, that while the study of God is an admirable and a wonderful pursuit, and man, it is, we will never, ever actually get to a point where we understand God. He's unsearchable. And here's why that's a good thing. 
Here's why it's a great thing. Because if you could ever figure out God, guess what? He's no longer worthy of your worship. Think about it. Man, if you can figure out God in your finite mind and you figure, that you figure him out, at that point he's no longer worthy of your worship because he ceases to be God in your life at that point. Wow. Nevertheless, God desires that we would pursue him, that we would study him, that we would think on him, but oftentimes in that pursuit, here's what happens. Here's what happens in our life. What we end up doing is we fall into the trap of minimizing God. We know he's great. We know he's amazing. We know all of the things about God, but we find ourselves in this trap where we want to we take God and we want to bring him into our world. We want to dress him up with flesh and bones and all of those things in our effort to try to get to know him because we want to relate to him. But what we do there is we end up minimizing him. And I love what J.I. Packer, he says, he says this, He says that today vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But the truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. He's weak, inadequate, ineffective, maybe even a little pathetic. But I love this. He says, but this is not the God of the Bible. That's not, is it? That's not the God of the Bible. He says our personal life is a finite thing. It is limited in every direction, in space, in time, in knowledge, in power. But God is not so limited. He is eternal. He's infinite. And He is almighty. And I want you to hear this. This is great. I'm so thankful for Dr. Packer. Here's what he says. He has us in His hands. We never have Him in ours. God has us in his hands. We never have him in ours. Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. He is great. Man, so many of us, uh, like the folks in the Bible, we get distracted by unpaid bills. Car's not working. Man, AC's broken. All of the things grandkids, kids, relationships. Man, we can so get lost and distracted by all the things in life. And listen, life is tough. We just had to replace our air air conditioning system. My gosh. I don't know why anybody didn't tell me that's so expensive. (laughs) Right? Life is tough. There's a lot of things in life. But you know what we end up doing is we end up believing the lie that the world lands right here in my hands. You know, when we grew up, you know, maybe you can recall this, maybe you can relate with me here. We grew up singing that song, He's Got the Whole World. No, sing it with me, come on. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 Man, you did good. That was great. And right, we, we grew up singing that song. And that yet, when it comes to real life, what do we do? We take the world out of his hands, and we bring it into ours. We do that, don't we? Absolutely. But here's the reality, right? We, we have this God who loves us, the creator of the universe, who sustains everything on this earth, right? He says, hey, give it to me. My greatness is unsearchable. How incredible is that? That the God of the universe knows you, knows exactly what's happening in your life, and he says, hey, give it to me. 
It changes everything. As a matter of fact, when we read texts like 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 that says, Cast your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Wow. How amazing is that? It changes the way that we think. It changes the way that we act. It changes the way and even the way that we believe. God's greatness is unsearchable. And like Israel in the wilderness, oftentimes we find ourselves grumbling and complaining. And you know what that ends up doing? You know what that tells us? Well, it just helps us see that maybe God is, is not quite as big as he ought to be. Right? Did, did God fail to provide for them in the wilderness? Did he? No. He didn't. But what do they long for in the wilderness? When God gives them manna, what do they do? They request meat. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, we do it all the time, don't we? We do. We fail to remember God's greatness, and yet that is the starting point of our worship. Worship begins with the greatness of God. It's sustained, and then it's sustained by the person, the work of Jesus. In John chapter 2, Jesus makes some really bold statements. Jesus, you know, the New Testament is filled with bold statements made by Jesus, uh, but here's what, he ha- here's what happens in John chapter 2. Jesus has just cleansed the temple, and he commands them to not honor his father's, or not to dishonor his father's house, okay? So that's the context of what's happening. And then the, the religious elite of the day look at, look at him in John 2, and they're like, but, but what authority do you have, A, to say that this is your father's house, and B, what, what authority do you have to cleanse the temple? And here's what Jesus says in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 19. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, that's bold. And they, they agree. They said, well, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? How do, you, how do you think you're going to do that? But then Matthew helps us. See, Matthew says, well, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical structure of, of the temple. He was talking about his body. And you got to know up to this point in Jewish history, right, God's presence dwelt among his people in the temple. So the place of worship was in the temple. And so now Jesus is proclaiming the arrival of a new temple, right? In our sermon series, as we're uh, unpacking the Sermon on the Mount, remember Jesus has come to this earth and he's ushered in a new kingdom where he is king. And as a part of that, he is saying, hey, I'm the temple. I'm the temple. No longer do you have to worship in a building or in a structure, but rather I am the place and the how for worship. He elaborates that in John chapter 4. You just flip the page and verse 23 is what he says. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Again, it's a complete paradox shift in their thinking. It's a paradox shift oftentimes in in even our thinking. Right? It means that worship, again, is no longer confined to a structure, a building, or even a geographical location. It no longer requires an animal sacrifice, nor does it require a priest. That's great news. For what Jesus is saying here is that he is the fulfillment of what we talked about a a few weeks ago. Remember that? That Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the prophets. He is the very temple. He is the sacrificial lamb. And guess what? He is the priest. He's the mediator between you and God, between me and God. No longer do I have to go to a priest 
right? I don't have to go to a priest to have a mediator between me and God, but rather I can go boldly right before the presence of God. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 19, he says, therefore, brothers, since we have such confidence, notice that, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, listen to this, he says, then let us draw near to God. Apart from Christ, we could never draw near to God because our sin before a holy God would literally kill us. But because of Jesus, we can now draw near. And so he says, boldly, we draw near to him with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So again, worship, it begins with the greatness of God. It's sustained through the person, the work of Christ, and it results in a transformed life. Listen, I want you to hear this. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you have been made right with him. You're once dead. Now you're alive. You're once orphaned. Now you're a son. You're a daughter of the king. You've been made right. But then also, because of Jesus, he is transforming you. You are being saved, right? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, you have been saved, you are being saved, and then because of Jesus, you will be saved. So that at his second coming, when we are ushered into the new heavens and the new earth, the new kingdom, we will stand in the presence of God, and there we will be made whole. We will be made new. No longer will we, will we, have, will we be sin. They're sinners. No longer will we have to deal with sin or pain or suffering, but we will be made whole. Wow. This is our hope, and it is what sustains our worship. It sustains the worship in those tough days and those deep valleys that you and I have all been in. It sustains our worship on the hilltop, on the mountaintop. This is our hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. I love what Paul writes. He speaks of this hope. He says, since we have such a hope, he says, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. He says, but their minds, they were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. It's Christ who takes away the veil. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But hear this. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So again, what Paul is saying here is, before Christ, we're all blind. We all have a veil over our hearts and over our eyes. We're incapable of seeing who God is and what He has done. But then all of a sudden, when we turn to the Lord, when the Holy Spirit does something in our lives and causes us to turn and to repent and to, to, to cast our lives before His throne, he says that there's a veil that's removed, and all of a sudden we can see God, and we can see Him for who He is. And there we experience what the Bible calls salvation. Salvation. The veil has been removed, and they respond in worship to the truth of who God is and what, they, what He has done for, for them in Christ, and there they experience true freedom. 
That's why you often hear people say in the moment of salvation that it felt like a massive weight had been lifted from their shoulders. And it's true because it has. As a matter of fact, God has taken the weight off their shoulders, their sin, their shame, their guilt. He has placed it on Christ. And so, yes, that burden has been lifted. It's incredible. It's a miracle. And yet, as we, those who have been unveiled, so to speak, what Paul says here is that we, when we look and we behold God with unveiled face, when we look at Him, we treasure Him, we delight in Him, what He says here is that we are transformed into the image of Christ. And we behold the glory of God when we see Him for who He is and what He has done for us in Christ, and, and we treasure that, we delight in that truth. What Paul is saying here is that it transforms us that you won't walk away the same, but that you ought to look more and more and more and more like Christ. And so when it comes to our worship, let's not forget that it begins with the greatness of God. It's sustained by the person, the work of Jesus Christ. But then also that the destination is that we would look more and more like him. I want you to know that my prayer every week as I'm preparing and I'm thinking about you and thinking about what God would have for us, I want you to know that my desire, my prayer for you is that every week when we come together, that God would be great in your life. That as we encounter Him through His Word, that you would see how big God is. That you would delight in Him, that you would treasure Him, that when you leave this room, you would look more like Him. Right? That's my job. That's my desire. That's what I believe that God's called me to do is to help you look more and more and more like him. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for worship. We thank you for what you have done for us, for who you are, that God, your greatness truly is unsearchable. And so oftentimes, Lord, we find ourselves worshiping lesser things, And so, Lord, I pray that you would cast our minds, our hearts, and our hands upon the truth of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. God, because one thing that I know is that we will never leave disappointed. When you are the source of our worship, we will never leave disappointed. Lord, I know that in this room, this size, there are many folks in here. There may be some folks who, who don't know you, And that veil is still over their eyes. God, I pray for them. I pray, God, that even today would be a perfect opportunity for you to unveil that over their eyes and their hearts, that they may see you for maybe for the first time and respond rightly to you through salvation. But then, God, there's others of us in this room who are going through mountaintops and valleys and all of those things. God, I pray that you would cast our eyes and our minds upon you and upon what you have done for us in Christ, Lord. And there I pray that you would transform us. God, you don't promise to make all of our circumstances perfect. You just promise that in our circumstances, you would be enough. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd be enough this morning. Because, Father, you are enough. You're enough for us. You are far sufficient. You You are far supreme. And, Father, you're all that we need. And so, Father, I pray that we would worship you this morning, with all the days of our lives, with our head, hearts, and hands, God, may that be our worship to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
If you would like more information, please visit fbbelton.org or call our church office at 254-939-0705. We are located at 506 North Main Street. We hope to see you soon.